My name is Rich, and I'm one of the partners here. Many of you all know me if you're visiting a first-time guest. Uh, I'm, I'm not the pastor. John and his wife Hannah are, are off visiting family for Thanksgiving, so giving them a little time off. So I have the opportunity to come back again this morning, uh, fill the pulpit for him, and it is always an honor for me, and it's good to see everybody here this morning. Uh, we read the, uh, the text out of uh, Matthew, uh, but this morning we're going to talk about Ten Commandments. I wanted to start with that text because I want, to, want you to see in the New Testament how much Jesus focused on the Ten Commandments. And we're going to walk through the reasons why in a few minutes. But Jesus said there, if you remember, he, when they, he was asked, which is the greatest commandment? And he said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second one is like it, to love your enemy as yourself. I'm sorry, love your neighbor, not your enemy. You love your, na- your enemy too. He says that in uh, Sermon on the Mount. But love your neighbor as yourself. It's interesting, the question is, what's the one greatest? And he gives two answers. And I will, hopefully you'll see the parallels, and we'll mention as we walk through the Ten Commandments. And I think what he's doing here is he's summing up all the Ten Commandments. Because he actually says at the very end, this is a summation of the law and all the prophets of the Old Testament. So I just want to catch you up if you haven't been with us. We've been walking through the book of Exodus and seeing this, uh, this great story of God's deliverance of his people of Israel. And it applies to each one of us because we are, we are that, that Israel. You are that Israel. God, God reconciled them and rescued them out of slavery, took them through. Last week we talked about the miraculous parting of the Red Sea, which is a picture of our salvation in him pulling us out of slavery to, to sin and death, and then he put them into the desert, so a time, a time of testing. Now, he didn't purposely test them, but anytime you take a large amount of people and you put them in the desert, there's going to be some tests and there's going to be some issues there. So you're going to see, as we walked through last week, we talked about where they were thirsty after a couple, a couple of days, and you imagine being in the desert, you're going to be that way, and how God took some bitter water and he made it sweet for them to drink. And then he... He created and gave them this miraculous food from heaven, this what you would call it stuff in the Hebrew. It's this manna from heaven. And he gave them uh, a, a snapshot of what's going to come. And he says, hey, on six days, gather it for that day. But on the sixth day, gather two days worth for the next day because the next day is the Sabbath, the holy. You're going to see that in the Ten Commandments. And then, he uh, again, they got thirsty again a couple of days later. And... Um, you see Moses pray, and he breaks a rock, and this, this fresh water comes through, and we connected that to Jesus, says, I am the living water that will bring you nourishment. So now we find ourselves in chapter 19. We're going to skip over a little bit. John's going to pick it up next week for some things that happen in between. But chapter 19, and you look at chapter 19, and if you've got your Bibles or electronic versions, I encourage you to open it up, because we're going to walk through it very quickly, because we do have Ten Commandments to walk through this morning. But chapter 19, it says... Three full moons later. So this is three months later. So now, after all of the, the manna from heaven, the water and the rocks, some other things happen, and then three months later, God calls the people to a mountain in the Sinai Peninsula. He calls them to a mountain, and he says, I'm going to do a miraculous thing before your eyes. And the, and the implication is he leads them by that pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud by days. He's, he's been leading them all the way through. He leads them to this mountain. And he says, I, I need you to come to this mountain. Don't touch the mountain. He gives them a whole bunch of instructions of what to do, what not to do. And he says, you're going to be my people. I just need you to listen to me and obey. And then he tells Moses, and it's kind of interesting when you read chapter 19 and 20, 
uh, it's kind of funny when you, he's talking with Moses. Moses, come up on the mountain. He gives Moses some instructions, sends Moses down the mountain. Moses, come up the mountain. Gives him instructions. Moses comes down the mountain. He does this five times. Imagine Moses. He's like, I'm getting tired of walking up this mountain. But this is the power of God. And says, Moses, this is what I want you to do. And he says one thing. He says, I want you to go down. I want you to consecrate the people. So in other words, you set them apart from all the sin. Have them ceremonially wash. So basically, he literally says, wash yourself and wash your clothes. So clean up. And then he says, three days after you do that. On the third day, which I think is interesting. On the third day, come to the mountain. On the third day. Does that sound familiar to something to us as Christians? On the third day, Jesus rose from the dead. On the third day, God is going to miraculously reveal himself to the nation of Israel. So go look with me in uh, Exodus 19, verse 16. I think we've got it. There he goes. On the morning of the third day, listen to the, the description here. There were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain in the very and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. At Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. And the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain greatly trembled. Other translation says it was like the smoke of a of a furnace, a blast furnace. Can you imagine the power of the one true God who created the heavens and the earth descending on one mountain, what that might look like in our eyes? This is what they experienced. They were experiencing the power and the awe and the glory of God in a physical location. And he, and he warns them through, and you'll see that other parts of it as you read through it, that he, tell, he says, stay back, don't approach it. You're going to want to, but don't do it because you'll be consumed. Because you, we cannot be in the presence of God because he's so powerful. And he talks to, to Moses, and he says, hey, I'm going to deliver you some special message. So come on up on the mountain, Moses. You can come up. But everybody else has to stay away and just worship. Now, what's so important about the Ten Commandments to us? I, when I was a kid, I, I learned the Ten Commandments. And as a, as a young guy, I was learned that, hey, these sound like rules, because this is kind of like what I was taught in school, right? I do these rules, and I, and I get rewarded. If I don't do the rules, I get punished. It's so easy for us to take the Ten Commandments just as a set of rules, to, to follow, and then we'll be in good graces with God. It's so easy to fall into that trap. But Jesus, through the whole New Testament, and Paul, he writes, it is by grace you've been saved by your faith, not of these following these, these religious rules. It's by who you are, who you see I am as your Lord and Savior. So why do we even, even consider our, the Ten Commandments? I mean, we don't follow under Old Testament law. As a, in uh, Romans, Paul says, Romans 6.14, let's pull that up. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're, now, since you're not under the law, but under grace. So by God's grace, it's, it's the forgiveness and the victory we have over sin through Christ. Then we, can just, we don't have to follow the, everything in the Old Testament. That's, that's, a, that's a poor translation, a poor understanding of what's going on in the Old Testament. Let's pull up the quote from Andy Stanley. So Pastor Andy Stanley down in... Uh, uh, Georgia, uh, and this is not to bash Andy Stanley, I just disagree with him. He wrote this book, Irresistible, Reclaiming the New that Jesus Unleashed for the World, and he says this, The Ten Commandments have no authority over you, none. To be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. And I don't know if about you all, but I'm thinking, whoa, wait a minute. There's a problem there. 
Because if you take, if you read that, he's saying, "Thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments," which God very clearly says, "You shall obey me." And what really, I think, what he's saying is, we are not slaves to the law. He's confusing categories of Old Testament law. There was civil law, there was legal law, and there was moral law. And I think Andy Stanley's saying, we don't have to follow the civil law anymore. And we're not going to take people out who commit adultery and stone them in the parking lot anymore. We don't do that. They did, but we don't. But what he's forgetting is these Ten Commandments are not just rules to follow. They are ten ethical, moral systems which we are called to live under. So thou shalt not uh, obey the Ten Commandments? Nope, disagree with it. Because I quoted uh, Romans 6.14, it says, you're not under the law, but under grace. But the very next verse, I think is what Pastor Stanley's missing. So let's bring up uh, 6.15. So here's Paul's continued argument. All right, so he says, you're, you're, not under, you're not under the law, you're under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law, but under grace? So basically he's saying, because we're under grace, then let's go out and do everything we want on Saturday night and ask for God's forgiveness on Sunday. We're all good. That's license. That is not what the gospel is talking about. Because he continues, says, by no means permit it not to be so. No, he's saying, Paul, it's emphatic in the Greek. He says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one to whom you obey? So when you put yourself under the authority of someone, you submit yourself to them, now you have to follow what they say. And if it's sinful, you're going to sin. But he, say, he finishes and says, no. But if, you lead, if, you, if you submit yourselves to obedience, which leads to righteousness, go to the next slide. But thanks be to God in verse 17. That once you were slaves to sin, you have now become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. So you become obedient in your heart to the standard of teaching. Where does that come from? It comes from God's moral law, the Ten Commandments. For they are foundational to all of our good, right society where we develop our systems of ethics, which ties into our morals, the decisions on what's good and what, or right and wrong. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. I don't know about you all, but if I'm going to be committed and submitted and a slave to something, it's not going to be to sin. I hate it. I want to be a slave to righteousness. And that's God's righteousness as defined in the Ten Commandments. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law. They're accusing me of that. He said, I came to fulfill the law. I came to open it up to you as New Testament Christians. The Ten Commandments were for the Hebrews, but he also says you were grafted in. This is the great mystery Paul talks about in Ephesians, that we as Gentiles are now grafted into Jesus' authority and his, and his heritage and his family. We're now sons and daughters. Let's go back to Exodus 19. So back to the mountain. The mountain's on fire. In Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6. And I want, I want you to see some special things here, what, what God is saying to the Hebrew nation. You remember, they just came out of 400 years of slavery. So they were living in Egypt 400 years. So there's generation, generation, generation. And, and you all, we, just in talking at Thanksgiving with your parents, maybe some grandparents, maybe some kids, you see some ideas and some philosophies get passed down. Imagine 400 years of that, living in a foreign country surrounded by polytheism, surrounded in a culture that worships the sun and the moon and the frogs and everything that they were talking about. That would kind of influence them, right? 
They were under a, a Pharaoh who saw himself as God. So God's got to correct us. He's got to teach them. He's got to grow them. He's rescued them out, so he has saved them. Now he wants to grow their character and nature. And he says in, in chapter 19, verses 5 through 6, he says, Now therefore, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, the covenant which I'm promising to you to be your God, you will be my people, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel, he says to Moses. So, they, so he's, he's transforming them from the inside out because if they're going to go out and be his witnesses to the world, he needs them to be a little bit different. He needs them to have the character and nature of who he is. He needs them to reflect his image, and that is his image of his heart of love and justice. So he needs to give them some foundations of moral law. But it's interesting because just like he says that to the Hebrews, let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's look what Peter says. Talking to the church, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's the same words. In Exodus, I, I can still see it here because it's on my page. He says, you are my treasured possession. In Peter, he says, you are my chosen race. You are my possession. He says, you, and to the, in Exodus, he says, you'll be kingdoms of priests and a holy nation. A holy nation. A royal priesthood. So are the Ten Commandments this moral law for us? Yes, because if we are going to be Christ ambassadors in this world, we need to have that same character and nature of God. Otherwise, we're going to fill it up with ourselves. But there's a problem, isn't there? The problem is, it's me. The problem is my own heart. And one of the commentaries I read, written by a, a, a great uh, teacher up at Westminster, R. Kent Hughes, he quotes two authors who did this study, James Patterson and Peter Kim. And they're studying, they're studying our current culture postmodern times. And they say absolutely, there's absolutely no moral consensus at all in our, in our community, in our culture. Everyone is making up their own personal moral codes. Everyone's making up their own Ten Commandments. The Ten Real Commandments that they found from surveys, let me show you a couple of them. These are the rules that some people like to follow. I don't see the point in observing the Sabbath. Okay, I may step on some toes here, but how many of y'all may have kids that be playing ball on Sundays? Now, is Sabbath Sunday? Well, no, but it, this is the day that we commit to God. And all through te the Testament, God says, hey, work seven days and, and commit one day to rest, to rest and to enjoy me. Now, I'm not going to get legalistic about it because what you do on your Sabbath is up to, between you and God, but do you have a Sabbath? Our culture says, nope, Sunday's no different than anything else. Uh, I will steal from those who really won't miss it. That kind of sounds like modern, uh, modern monetary theory. Uh, I will lie when it suits me as long as it doesn't cause any real damage. You know, I, may, I may lie a little bit here and there. I may be all told a little white lie as long as it doesn't really hurt anybody else. That's not the character and nature of God. Uh, here's one to make <laughs> a little graphic. Uh, I will cheat on my spouse. After all, given the chance, he or she will do the same. That's, that's focused. That's not focused on the marriage covenant. It's focused on your own gratification. And last one, 
this, this last one will probably, when I read it, I'm like, yeah, I've probably been guilty of that one. I will procrastinate at work and do absolutely nothing about one full day in five. That's kind of inconsistent with, with God's theory and ethic of work, which we're going to get into. All right, so the main idea. What I want you to see, besides that, that this moral law applies to us today, it wants to draw our character towards God. It wants to, to help us mold us into his image. I want you to see that these Ten Commandments display God's standard for holiness. Now, we're not going to be fully holy on this side of heaven, but we should be striving to be more holy like God and his moral law. So in giving the Ten Commandments, God calls us to understand specifically two of his attributes and then respond in spiritual maturity. Number one, I want you to see, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And I think he is summarizing commandments one through four. And I want you to see in commandments one through four, the sovereignty of God. So go to Exodus chapter 20 with me. We're going to walk through these 10 commandments and I'm going to point out a couple uh, comments on each one. We're going to make some application. Exodus chapter 20, and God spoke these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So this is, this is the intro to the Ten Commandments. And what he's saying is, his, remember the personal name we talked about when he revealed himself to Moses earlier in Exodus? And Moses, he says, Moses, or Moses asked him, okay, I'm going to go back to Pharaoh. Which God am I telling him uh, is, is, is calling you to send us home? And God says, tell them I am. Tell them I am who I am. I am the being God. I am the one true God. Everything else is what you all made up to, to, to explain the things that you can't explain. I'm the one who created all that. I am the Lord your God. And he's literally saying, I am the Lord, the Lord. When Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? Peter said, you are my Lord and my God. It's very similar language. He's establishing who he is, and then he, said, and he reminds them, I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt. I'm the one who rescued you out of slavery. Remember that Red Sea thing that happened three months ago? I did that. I am the Lord, your God. And what is interesting is when he says your God, he's not talking to a collective. That word is, is I'm going to go back, go back to like uh, to high school grammar. Remember the, the first person, second person, third, third person, you got singular and plural. Remember that, those conjugatings? That word there is second person singular. He is saying, I am your God, not your God. I am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that we are grafting into. He's asserting his sovereignty here. So... He says the very first commandment. Verse number three. Since he's asserting his sovereignty, he is the I am God. He says, you shall have no other gods, little g's, before me. No other gods before me. He's, he is declaring his unity. He is truth. He's the only one. He's exclusive. He is it. You shall have no other before me. Before me means beside me, face to face, equal, same pedestal. He says, this is not... Uh, I'm winning the gold medal and there's a silver medal. He's like, no, there's not a bronze medal. There's only one, and I'm it. There's no polytheism. So they grew up, remember, 400 years of worshiping all these multiple gods from the Egyptians, and then the Greeks had a very similar, the Romans had a very similar, and we have them today. Um, if you, especially if you go out through the Middle East, 
you'll, you'll see God's to this, God's to that. He's saying, nope, I'm it. So he's asserting his sovereignty, which ties into the second commandment, verse number four. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image, which kind of makes sense. If there's no other gods, gods, don't make yourself a carved image to worship. Or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's earth below or that is in the water underneath the earth, which is interesting. He's talking about don't create something and worship it from the heavens. So don't worship the sun and the moon. He's specifically poking, poking fun, I think, here at the Egyptian gods. Uh, don't make anything that crawls on the earth. Don't make uh, eagles and serpents. Remember, the Pharaoh had a serpent on his head that they would worship. Uh, then he says, and under the earth. So that's, that's the sea creatures. And for the plagues, there was a plague about the frogs and the alligators and stuff like that. That was, that was because there were gods to that. So he's saying here, you got to cut all that out. I'm the one true God. Don't make any likeness to it. Because God is spiritual. He's not material. He's not a material God that is the God of corn. He is, he is the I am God that hung the moon and the stars and created you in your mother's womb. He's not material. He's not a thing to be worshipped. He is the divine, one true, holy God that we have to worship. Again, it's countering the polytheism. This is establishing our, our ethical foundation. He is sovereign and we are not. You start with that. Verse 5, he's continuing on. This is the same, the same um, uh, commandment. Don't have any carved images and don't bow down and serve them. And he repeats it. For I am the Lord your God. So, I am, so Yahweh, I am, I am God. I am the Lord, Lord. I'm a jealous God. And that doesn't mean it's the bad jealous like we deal with. This is, I am jealous for my people. I want this relationship. I want to protect it. And I'm going to do anything I can to protect it protect you because you're my people and I'm your God. So and then he talks about his justice here. He says he's visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation for those who hate me. So there's some justice there, there's some judgment there, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. I think the better interpretation there is I'm, those who hate me, I'm going to bring judgment upon the children's children because those ideas are passed down. So I'm going to have to judge that. He doesn't like to do that. He says, but those who love me, I'm going to show steadfast love to thousands and thousands of generations. So our translation leaves it out, but I think it's implied there. It's comparative. He is a perfect judge, but he's also the sovereign, loving God. Paul fleshes this out in Romans, so if you, if you want to more, more in depth, let's just go read Romans like 1 through 15 and you'll get it uh, over time. And what he's establishing here, he's establishing this moral code or an ethical system of justice. Paul hits this really well and he says God is perfectly loving and he's the perfect judge. If, he's, if he doesn't judge our sin, then he can't be God. If he only judges us, if he's only a God that's handing down judgments, then he doesn't love us and he's not God. He's the perfect match in between because he is perfect. All right, number three. Uh, commandment number three, verse seven. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will hold, not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What's his name? It's the I am, I'm the being God. Uh, we... I think we, we uh, simplify this too much to say, just don't use God's name in a cuss word. Well, that is true, but it's also, Jesus takes it in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about oaths. 
And he says, don't swear by God. Don't say, hey, on God's name, I will do this. And then he says, okay, well, that's, that's a little too far. So Jesus takes it even further and says, don't even swear on the temple or the, or the stuff on the table or even the candlestick because that's what they were doing. So, okay, I, I swear on my, my, my mother's grave is how we would say it today. And Jesus is saying in Sermon on the Mount, hey, no, that's not what it's about. It's not about crossing your fingers behind your back. This is about letting your yes be yes and your no be no. And that's what God's getting at right here. He says, do not profane my name. Don't use it just simply because my name is holy. So much holy that even, our, even today our Orthodox uh, Jewish uh, people don't even say the word Yahweh. They won't even write it. They just leave it out. It's implied everywhere because they don't want to mispronounce it. Jesus says in his model of prayer, remember, how's he started off? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He is holy. Verse 8, the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Here it is again. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, for in six days, so he's tying this back to Genesis, in six days the Lord made heaven, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in it, and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Sabbath literally means to stop, to a cessation, because we're so busy. He's given us these, these drives and lives to do things, and sometimes we like to kind of chunk it all through the week. And he's saying, hey, I want you to work. Work is good. It's also a judgment from the garden, but work six days. But there is a ratio of six to one that you need to find rest. How many of y'all have have been working really hard, maybe two or three jobs, or you're in school, or you got kids, and, and towards the end of the week, you're just like, man, I just need a nap. And that's when you usually start to violate some of these Ten Commandments. Sometimes you, you're not loving. Sometimes you don't love your neighbor as yourself. Sometimes you get short. You get angry. That's when you're going to stoop into that sinfulness. That's when you're going to start those little white lies. That's when you're going to start cheating on your taxes because you're going to justify it in your mind. God said you need that rest to recoup, to remember who I am and remember what I've called you to do and more importantly, called you to be, to be, to rest. So here we see the ethics of work. It's also the ethics of integrity for, the, for number three and four. So ethics of work and ethics of integrity. Again, these are not just rules that we blindly follow. I want you to see that these are clear ethical systems of thinking, and it should drive our moral actions. We should do that out of reverence for the great I am, the God who's on this mountain. They're a system for us to grow our character. It's not just, it's not just this, uh, this idea that we come to Christ, and now I have, I have license to do things. It's where we really develop this heart to, I don't want to do those things anymore. And God will bring that to you. It's about God teaching us to be his sons and daughters who impact the world for him, not impact the world for ourselves. Warren Buffett, uh, I think many of y'all know, he's, he's one of the richest mans in the world. Uh, I looked him up yesterday. I think he's worth like $98 billion right now. And he is committed, I don't know if you know this, maybe some of you do, he's committed to give away 98% of his wealth in his lifetime. He's not going to give it to his kids. Now, they're going to get a little bit. He's going to have more than any of us, but 
He's not going to give it to his kids because he believes a lifetime supply of food stamps just because the kids came out of the right womb would be harmful to them, he says. So he's given, if you give them just a ton of money without giving them the character that goes with it, they're going, to, they're going to be leeches on everybody around them and treat people poorly. And he says, uh, I got a quote up here. Do you have that? The Warren Buffett quote? Yeah. I want to give my kids just enough money so that they feel that they could do anything, but not so much that they would feel like doing nothing. It's pretty wise. He's showing his kids, yeah, we have this amassed this huge wealth, but I want you to, I want you to go out and, and be fruitful and multiply, son and daughter. And he talks about, I, I looked him up yesterday a little bit more, and he talks about his children, and they're, his, his kids are in their 50s and 60s now, and they're running all kinds of um, uh, charities and all kinds of stuff. And he says, I love watching my children find ways to ethically and morally give money away. They're doing good things. Because it's the character and nature of loving your neighbor as yourself. In Mark, um, Jesus has a conversation with the Pharisees, and the Pharisees are asking him about this. They're really they're challenging him, say, "Hey, why aren't why?" It's kind of a silly question. They, they say, "Hey, we notice that your disciples they don't wash their hands before they eat. They don't ceremonially wash, go through the washing and cleansing stuff before they eat." And Jesus, I can imagine going, "Yeah, because we've been living out in the woods. <laughs> We're hungry." But he doesn't say it that way. That's kind of how I interpret it. And Jesus says, hey, what's the, there's a big difference between doing all the ceremonial things that you have created versus honoring God with your heart. What's more important is his challenge to them. And he says in Mark 7, verse 9, he finishes up with this. He says, you have a fine, talking to the Pharisees, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your traditions. So he's saying, hey, you've got, you put your religion and all, their, all the, the strict adherence to these Ten Commandments, you have missed the mark that this is about changing your heart and seeing the sovereignty of God. So that's point number one, the sovereignty of God. Point number two, I want you to see, this is uh, numbers five through ten. I want you to see the love of God, the sovereignty of God and the love of God. And this love is also the love we show to our neighbors. All right, let's look at uh, verse 12. Exodus 20, verse 12. Number five. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. He has told them, I'm taking you through a process. I'm going to take you to a land of, of flowing with milk and honey. And when you, when you get there, if you follow my commandments, specifically this one, that's interesting. It's a promise. If you honor your mother and your father. Jesus quotes this. Paul quotes this. Um, even Jesus says, this is the only ones with a promise. So it's not an if-then thing. If you honor your mother and father, your days will be long. What God is saying, if you have the heart to show honor to your elders, that is a beautiful heart of love. And because of that, you're going to experience some, some really neat things. If you don't honor your elders, woe be to you. That's basically what he's saying. So this is the ethics of the family. Uh, Verse 13, we're going to pick up the pace. Verse 13, number 6. This is a short one. You shall not murder. I don't know if Pastor Stanley has a problem with that one. He says you're not, you, you shouldn't obey the Ten Commandments. I don't know. That's probably a good one. We probably should. You should not murder. Uh, and that word there specifically means putting to death improperly for selfish reasons. 
Now, we could get into the whole pacifism and God going to war thing. We won't do that today. But God says you shall not murder purposely and properly for selfish reasons. Very similar to Cain and Abel. Don't do that. Not good. This is, the, this is really the ethics of conflict because there's going to be conflict. Uh, there's going to be wars. He, he does wars for Israel. But this is, there's ethics to it. And this is really where the uh, Augustine, and then picked up by later Aquinas, brought out the, the just war theory of thinking through this particular verse. How do we deal with sin in this world and evil and terror properly and, and, and not mix up moral equivalents? All right, uh, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. Number seven. Again, that's probably a good one to follow. Reinforcing the sanctity of marriage in Genesis. In Genesis, before the fall, the creation of, ma- of marriage, God says a man and woman shall be joined together and they shall become one flesh. And by breaking that, you're breaking a covenant. You're breaking, you're breaking a family when you do that. So reinforcing the sanctity of marriage. This is the ethics of a covenant. So it's a, we have to understand that a promise with God, with us, He's not going to break it. He's calling us to, to not break it as well. In our sinful bodies, we're going to at times, but he's saying the ethic of which you, sh- which you should decide what is good and what is wrong is keep it. Keep your covenant. It's also the ethics of, sex- of sexual ethics, uh, which you'll see later on through, through the entire New, uh, Old New Testament. All right, verse uh, 15, number eight. You shall not steal. That sounds like a pretty good one. It's probably one I want to obey, right? Yeah, you shouldn't steal. Pretty simple, but if you think about it, what is he doing here? What is God laying down? Our entire legal system, from the British common law system to what we have today, it's based on that right there. You shall not murder, you shall not steal. Coming up, you shall not bear false witness. These sound very simple, very short, but what God is doing here is he is laying out very succinctly foundational ethics for a civil society and his church. Specifically, he's talking about, hey, when you go into the, later on you'll see, when you go into the land, I promise you, I'm going to give you land and you're going to divide it up among the the 12 and you shall not move the borders. Because if you move the borders of your neighbor, you're stealing from them. And that is a heritage of which you pass down over time. And we carry it over to normal society. So how do we steal today? Anybody guilty of stealing? Hmm. Any idea? Yes, Kristen said. <laughs> okay, so simple thing, a pencil at work. Your, your employer provides you basic supplies, pencils, post-it notes. Some of y'all taken those home before. It's a small thing, right? It probably doesn't, it's not going to make a, make a dent in their uh, profit loss statements. But what about the integrity of your heart? You open the small door to little things, you'll open the big door later. Again, when you're not resting, you're not taking Sabbath, you have cheated on your spouse, and now, now you're just off to the races. So this is the ethics of ownership, the ethics of property rights, of which is very foundational to our Constitution. All right, let's go to... Uh, Verse 16, number 9. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Abby, you got anything on that one? Co-counsel? Uh, is this crucial to our justice system, bear, not bear false witness? 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if, we, if we have a court system set up and you go into court and you, and you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, at least that's why I see they say it on TV. I'm not sure how it's really, you know, it goes. If you lie in that, now what happens to justice? It's eroded, isn't it? The only way we have true justice is if we have truth out of people's mouths. Do not bear false witness. Uh, this, this, has the, this is ethics of justice and truth. And then Jesus talks about it later on. Uh, again, let your yes be yes and your no be no. All right, let's go down to uh, Exodus 17. Number 10, we're, we're there, number 10. Uh, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Okay? How many of y'all uh, living in a house right now and you really like your neighbor's house? Anybody? Okay. Uh, what's the difference between liking it and coveting it? What's that? Yeah. Yeah, you don't really want to have it. So the, the, the word there is, it's, it's like that. Thank you very much. It's longing for. It's the craving it to a fault. Now, we can have things. I like some of these boats out here, right? But if I crave it and I think about it all day long, I turn it into a god, right? I turn it into an idol. So now I'm, now I'm violating number one. Uh, and then you're going to get to the point where you, you're craving so much, now you become envious and you don't want them to have it. How dare they have that and I can't have that? Because then it, then it goes to, well, how did they get that? Did they cheat somebody for money? See how it goes? That's craving. It's going to lead you into, lead you into sin. But it doesn't stop there on this one. This gets gooder. I'm from Tennessee. It gets gooder. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And just for those who think it's only guys, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. How can you love your neighbor if you want all their things? Because what will you do if you want their things? You're going to manipulate to get close to them. That's not loving your neighbor. Do not long for or crave to a thought. This is really what I, I, I couldn't think of an exact ethical situation on this one, how you define it. So I came up with this idea. It's just completely out of my head. This is the ethics of your heart affections. Your ethics of your heart affections. What is the system for which you are putting guardrails up for your heart so that you don't violate any of the numbers one through nine? Because here's that way it goes. If you covet, if you covet your neighbor's house, then you're going to, as, as we said, you're going to start to judge them. If you covet your neighbor's wife, it's going to lead to adultery in some form or fashion. Jesus talks about that in the Sermon on the Mount. Coveting what someone else's possessions will lead you to stealing and then bearing false witness. Coveting possessions leads to violating one through four because now you've made it an idol. And you don't care about God. You have made that thing you're worshiping. And you're going to pervert his name to get it. And you're going to do it on the Sabbath. I'd throw that one in. So, number 10 kind of, kind of encapsulating this all. And God and Jesus is trying to transform us from the inside out. God, through these systems, is trying to very simply lay some, some guidelines down for us, not rules to follow, uh, so that we can, again, reflect his image.
The reason it's not rules is Paul talks about in Romans, he says, hey, what is the purpose of the law? He has this long conversation. The purpose of the law is to show you that you can't keep it. If it's just a set of rules, you're going to violate one of those the minute you walk out the door. And if you follow the law for your salvation and you violate the law in thought, now you violate it at all and you're without hope. So there's grace through that. Not license, but grace through Christ our Lord. Um, you know, speaking of houses, my wife and I, we're, we're shopping for houses right now. And uh, we were looking at some yesterday, and we are driving through the neighborhood. And one thing, our, our method is we find something we like online, we drive through the neighborhood to see if we like the neighborhood. Because it's really important to like the neighborhood, but also, what about the neighbors? <laughs> right? So we look at the neighbor's house on each side. You know, what, what, what do they look like? Um, checking out the neighborhood, considering your neighbors. So is this someone you're going to live next, you really won't think you might want to live next door to for a long period of time? Right? Well, here's the challenge. Are you that neighbor that your neighbor wants to live next to you? Do you have the character and nature to be a good neighbor? Or do you have the character and nature to be a selfish, coveting neighbor? Do you have a track record laying your yes be yes and your no be no? Or do you like the little white lies? Do you cheat on things sometimes? Do you steal? Do you covet? Do you think of other things as idols? Or are you really desiring to have this character and nature that reflects the love of God so that we can love our neighbors to bring them to God. Because if you don't love them, they're not, they're not going to love God. Chapter 20 of Exodus, 10 commandments. Through the next 10 chapters, he's going he's to go through some of them in detail. He's going to get into very specific things about the tabernacle, which we're gonna, John's going to talk about in a couple of weeks. But in chapter 32, so the picture is God's on the mountain, the furnace. Uh, Moses goes up, and he's up there for a long time. We're not going to get into the golden calf. I know know y'all want to. We're not going to get into it. He's up there for a while. Moses comes down, it says in in chapter 32, verse 15, he comes down the mountain with the tablets written on both sides, the word says, and it says, quote, it's the writing of God engraved. Similarly, in, or likewise, in, in the previous chapter, it's a description of God and Moses talking, and God gives Moses these tablets, and it says that God made the tablets. So, and then he says, and when he had finished speaking to him on the mountain, the two tablets of the testimony, the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. These very words are recorded to be written with the very finger of God on tablets that were given to to Moses that were engraved the writing of God. Imagine being in that group of people standing on that mountain and they they were so sure what they were seeing. It talks about how afraid they were, how terrified and scared they were by the presence of the holy God. And Moses comes down and he's got the very writing of God on the stone with God's finger. That is God enfleshing something on stone to change our heart. John, the Gospel of John, talks about, and we're going to celebrate his advent. Jesus became flesh. He enfleshed to, to write on the, the tablets of our heart these same things. 
That is the connection of the finger of God, the fleshing of Jesus. Because he says, I have come that you may have life, that you may have life more abundantly here and now. And I need you to grow into be the son of God. This precious daughter of God that reflects his image. And you can only do that by changing your heart. Because there are certain things you do if you're the family of God. How many of y'all have a favorite sports team? What's yours? The Hokies. Does your family, are they all Hokies? That's what your family does? Yeah. Jesus' family is about people. Jesus' family is about goodness and righteousness. A couple years ago, I was uh, chaplain with the Marines in, in Okinawa, and we were having uh, some issues with... Uh, just kind of some sexual misconducts and treating some, some of the Marines, especially the female Marines, poor. Then we had to go through this training, and we're all in this theater, and we're talking about what is good and right in this, this ethos of the Marines. And if you, if you all have seen anything about the Marine Corps, they're very proud of their ethos of who they are. They're United States Marines. And there's a staff sergeant got up, and I never will forget this. He got up, and he was supposed to be doing this brief, and he... He said, I'm supposed to do this PowerPoint and walk through this, this sexual harassment training, but I'm not going to do it because here, here's what it boils down to. He looked at all, at all of them. He said, here's what it boils down to, Marines. It boils down to we don't do that. We don't do that because we're United States Marines, and every Marine is a Marine. It doesn't matter what gender they are. We don't do that. We take care of our team. And he walks off. And it was dead silent. I'm like, that was awesome. He comes to me later, and I'm like, Staff Sergeant, that was fantastic. And he was kind of a unique guy. He sits down, he flops down on my couch in my office. You know where I got that, right, Chaps? I'm like, no, I don't. He said, that's what Jesus taught me. Jesus taught me that as a, that as a Christian, there are things I do and things I don't do. Not because, I, not because it's rules, it's because it's who I am. And I just carried that to the United States Marines. Because that's not what we do. What do we do as Christians? We love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind. We love our neighbor as ourselves. That staff sergeant said, I'm always faithful. Semper Fidelis. Are you always faithful to God? Are you faithful to God, your spouse, your family, your friends, your boss, your commitments? In summary, I mentioned uh, R. Kent Hughes, a, a great, great theologian. It says, to summarize the Ten Commandments, they display the character of God. They reveal his sovereignty, his jealousy, his justice, his holiness, his honor, faithfulness, his providence, his truthfulness, and his love. He's calling us to be the same. Let us pray. 